found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, and I'll be reading verses 66 through 71. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 883. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. This is the word of the Lord. Go from Luke chapter 22. We have been in the gospel according to Luke now for several years. We've gone line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, scene by scene. In these last few weeks, we've slowed down being even more careful to look at every scene as we've come, as we came to that last week in the life of Jesus before the cross. And I've asked you each, like when we were in the upper room for several Sundays there with, with Jesus and the disciples, to put yourself into that scene. Last week we looked at, at Peter and his denial, and we put ourselves we put ourselves in, in that scene. I want you to do the same thing. These are narratives. A narrative is, is a, a record of the, the history, a record of the story. It's different when you're dealing with a didactic teaching from doctrine like Romans or Ephesians. It's harder to put yourself in those, in those because it's, it's not a narrative. Uh, you can do it. Put yourself in the doctrine. But it's easier in a narrative. And so as we look at this scene of Jesus in this trial, this morning I want the congregation, each one of us, to stand in that scene. It's, a, it's important uh, to understand what is, not only to understand what has happened, but to put yourself in that scene. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Jesus who was there, who's here this morning, let's ask you to teach us. Let's pray. 
Our father, as Tyler requested, we have been praying for the MSRYM, the, the middle school uh, reformed youth ministry conference. We continue this morning, all of us together, we pray that you would lay your hand of blessing upon this entire trip. We thank you for how you blessed it. We thank you for the, the great number that are going. We thank you for providing uh, scholarships, for providing bus, for providing for this time. And we pray, Father, for the safety, the travel, safety and travel, the safety while there, the safety coming back. We pray, our Father, for what will happen spiritually there as hour after hour our youth will hear the word of God. As hour after hour they were intermingled with fellow Christians, with fellow saints who know you. We pray that in every part of this they will be strengthened. Our Father, we pray this morning for Jim Bennington, for Billy Griggs. We pray that you would cause them to look forward with anticipation. We pray that you would provide for them, strengthen their minds, strengthen their bodies. But most of all, strengthen, Father, that, that inner soul, that heart. Cause them to remember your gospel. Now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts. John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. But we pray in these next few minutes that we will see this scene as we've never seen it before. That, Father, you would teach us. Teach us what it has to do with where we are right now. Thank you, Father. We pray that in these we pray that when we leave here in a few minutes, we will know that you have spoken. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's several levels of the trial or in the trial of Jesus. We see the first one this morning. In this first court appearance. He's before a religious court. It's not a, a Roman court, but it's a court of the church of the Old Testament. And that's where I want to begin. I want us to look at this passage and see Jesus in a religious courtroom. Look at verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said. Now, if you're trying to put this together chronologically, you need to remember that when he was arrested, when Jesus was arrested, he was taken to the house, not the court, the house of the high priest. If you look back at verse 54, and when they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, Peter followed at a distance. That's where they had rested in Gethsemane. 
went to the high priest's house because it was the religious court that arrested him. A preliminary interview took place there at the high priest's house. But no official trial could take place at night. So very early in the morning, how does the verse begin? When day came, when the sun came up, the official trial could begin. So very early in the morning, Jesus is taken from that house to the council. You have heard us speak of the Sanhedrin. This is where he appeared. Before this council, before the Sanhedrin. When day came, the assembly of elders. What elders? Elders of the people. Elders who were members of the Sanhedrin. Both chief priests who made up these elders, both chief priests, leaders of the priestly order, and scribes of the law. That would have been teachers of the law. This was a religious court. I want us to first know that. Get that in our heads. It's a religious court. The church. It's a court of the church of the Old Testament. Now, it was under the authority of Rome. Rome allowed conquered states, conquered provinces, conquered cities, to have local courts, courts that applied religious law or laws, or, or laws peculiar to that particular society. The Romans would delegate lesser cases to these courts. This specific court was one such court, the court of the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, excuse me. So why had this religious court arrested Jesus? The court had to have an indictment. There had to be a warrant. For three years, they had been disturbed. We've seen it Sunday after Sunday as we've studied Luke. These same leaders, religious leaders, were disturbed by his sermons, his actions, his claims. He had claimed to be able to forgive sin. He had claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, the God of the Sabbath. He had claimed to be Messiah of Israel. He claimed that he was judge. He would be and was the judge of all of men and all of history. He had claimed to have known Abraham personally. He had claimed to be one with the Father. He healed and, and he healed by command, by fiat, not by prayer. He didn't pray for people to be healed. He spoke and they were healed. He spoke as God himself. Now I want to ask you a question. Have you personally ever known anyone to make those claims? Has anyone ever stood in this pulpit and made those claims about himself? We would be astounded to hear a human being that we know make claims like this. That is exactly what disturbed those religious folks, those that, that religious court. It's what disturbs the church today. Take away those claims and Christianity would have, or, or the world would have no problem with Christianity. Take away those claims and Christ would get along quite well out in the world. But this is not the only time he was tried by a religious court. Jesus has been carried into all types of religious courtrooms. 
in every century. I watched, some of you watched it personally also, I watched as this same Jesus was brought into the courts of the old Southern Presbyterian Church. It was known as the Presbyterian Church in the United States. It was primarily a Presbyterian church that's located in the southern states. I watched as that church began to deny the cardinal doctrines of Scripture. I was taught in their schools, their courts, that Jesus was not the Son of God, that he was not deity. It was impossible. It was, it was We live in a modern age. It was scientifically impossible for God to become flesh. I was taught in the same courts that Jesus was not born of a virgin. It's scientifically impossible. I watched as, as men came into the, the church courts, we call presbytery, and were examined by ministers, by people like this Sanhedrin. I was a part of that court. And men would be, a, would be questioned, would be examined, and they would not believe in the deity of Christ. They wouldn't believe in the miracles. They wouldn't believe in the virgin birth. And yet we approved them for the ministry. That was no different than what was happening in that courtroom. It was a denial of who Jesus was. And Jesus is. That was in the last century, in the 60s and 70s, that that happened, that I, as I watched. In the, first, in the first part of the 21st century, Jesus has been carried into the religious courtrooms of the, of the postmoderns. The religious postmoderns found that bigotry in the claims of Christ. They would say it's bigotry because he was too exclusive. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And they crucified him on their cross of narrow-mindedness. What am I saying? I'm saying when you read this, go back and read the, the scripture for the morning. Go back and read this week, Luke 22, 60 through 71. And this has happened over and over and over again. In the religious courtroom. I read this several years ago and I keep it where I can see it. It was written by Darnell Armstrong who was at that time the rector of Grace Episcopal Church uh, in Colorado Springs. He edited, uh, edited a book in 1999 entitled, Who Do You Say That I Am? And just like in the Presbyterian Church, in the Anglican Church, there was all sorts of denials about the deity of Jesus. And he wrote this. Listen to it. In our current time, the essential and life-changing question that Jesus asked of his disciples who do you say that I am has been in the theology of many effectively changed to who would you like me to be? From radical feminist theologians who critique Jesus through their particular experience as women to church growth experts who offer God at your service. Jesus has been revisioned and re-imaged to bless 
what we have become and to grant the fulfillment of our excessive desires. We use a supermarket approach for finding a place to worship in which we shop for Christ of our choosing, God on my terms, in my image, and at my service is the demand of the postmodern seeker. That's happened, that happens right here constantly in Fayette County. It's Jesus in a religious courtroom. In every century, the trial of Jesus in Luke 22 in every generation is repeated over and over and over again. And as you look at this, and you might have read, when we read it this morning, you say, what does this have to do with me? This is, this is passe, this is so. No, it's not. It's happening right now where we live. Jesus in a religious courtroom. Secondly, I want you to see a legitimate indictment. They had a legitimate indictment. If you're the Christ, look at verse 67. If you are the Christ, if you're Messiah, they said, tell us. Christ is a Greek word meaning anointed one. It was used to translate the Hebrew word Messiah. They had been looking for a Messiah for a thousand years. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? That's what they were saying. He had claimed to be the Messiah. And that was the indictment for which he was arrested, that he falsely claimed to be the Messiah. Folks, under their laws, this was a legitimate concern. In fact, under our laws and the law of the church, it would be a legitimate concern. And in fact, in the scriptures, which Jesus professed to believe, this was a valid issue. Is someone out there claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah? To be a false prophet was what? Blasphemy. To claim to be the Messiah, if you weren't, was blasphemy. They heard Jesus claim to be Messiah. And they said, that's blasphemy. You're not Messiah. You're Jesus of Nazareth. We know your parents. And again, all of us know there are many churches out there of every single stripe who teach that Jesus was not the Messiah. I've just spoke of the denomination in which I grew up. I ended up leaving that denomination because they were in complete denial of the person of Jesus Christ, who he said he was. I don't want to be vague here. Presbyterian churches, Episcopal churches, Anglican churches. Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Lutheran churches. Now, some of you just heard Baptist. You say, whoa, 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 back up. You mean there's Baptist churches that teach that? Church where I preach was right next door to a liberal Baptist church that preached that. Most of us have friends who don't believe what we believe about Jesus. They go to church. They say they're Christians. If they do not believe in the reality of the virgin birth or the miracles of Christ or the deity of Christ, they certainly don't believe he's the only way to God. Now, hang on. This is so important. So how do you handle the claims of Christ? How do they handle, when they say he's not, how do they handle the claims of Christ? Well, they will say he didn't actually himself make these claims. 
They say he did not actually do all those miracles. He didn't claim to do them. They believe that those claims were added by his disciples after the cross, after he died. They believe that when the, when the disciples wrote the gospels, that they put in those claims. Now, there's not one shred of evidence that supports their thinking. Their only evidence is that we live in a modern age and these things can't happen. But they have one huge problem. One of the, one of the, the, the greatest problems they have is what we read this morning and what took place in the court of Sanhedrin. Why was Jesus arrested? Why? Because he made those claims. So how do you say uh, he really didn't make those claims? When even his enemies, even at the trial, knew that he made those claims. When this was asked, you say, well, John, you certainly must have asked that question when you were in seminary. Yes, I did. And when you ask, well, if they wrote if they put in those claims afterwards, why was he put on trial? Why did this trial take place? Young people, you're going to hear this out there in the world. You're going to, when you go to college, you're going to hear it. Ask questions. You don't believe in that. You don't believe that he made those claims. What was the basis for his trial? Jesus in a religious courtroom, a legitimate indictment. They had heard him make the claims and it was against their laws to falsely claim to be the Messiah. Thirdly, I want you to see in this passage a self-incrimination. Look at verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. In Matthew, we read that they had several men come and testify to this court before the Sanhedrin. The high priest finally grew tired of their efforts. And he put the question directly to Jesus. Look at verse 67. If you're the Christ, tell us, are you the Christ? And you can see it if you're there. They all lean forward. This is what it's all about. What will he say? Certainly in this place, in that room, he'll not reiterate his claim because it will mean death. And he knows it will mean death and he's not going to say it. His answer was even more devastating than it seems at first. He began by saying, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if you ask, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He was saying, you have seen the miracles. You've, why are you asking me? You've heard my claims for the last three years. I've said it, and you did not believe me. If I tell you, you will not believe. If I reiterate it, you're not going to believe it now. But so, and this is what I love. This is what I love. But so... This is the boldness of Jesus Christ. But so there can be no mistake about what I've said in the past. But from now on, the Son of Man 
shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Why did he say that? Jesus was alluding to a messianic passage from the Old Testament. We see it in Daniel 7, verse 13. Matthew, in his gospel, gives a more fuller statement. And so we know for sure Jesus was alluding to Daniel 7, 13. Look at it on your scripture sheet. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man was the Son of Adam. It was talking about the Son of a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, understand Jesus was looking at those men and saying, that is who Daniel, I am the person of whom Daniel spoke. I am the son of man. That's what he was saying in that passage. Every man in that room knew that passage by heart. They could not only knew it by heart and quote it, they could exegete it word by word. Jesus was saying to them, that is me, the son of man. That was a title that Jesus used of himself more than any other. The son of man, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. And always look back to that passage in the Old Testament. He said, I am the one who will be there seated at the right hand of the Almighty. I will be the one coming on clouds of glory. Now, do you realize how powerful that answer was? Jesus threw down the gauntlet. And, he, and even then, even then, look at verse 7. They ask, are you then the son of God? And he said, you are right in saying I am. A self-incrimination. He said, your indictment is true. It's not blasphemy. I'm not blaspheming. Your indictment that I claim to be the son of God, that's true. I claim to be because that's who I am. But in the way he said that, and I'll be seated at the right hand of the Almighty, he was saying something that we often miss. In fact, I missed it for years when I looked at this. Jesus was subtly saying, you think I'm on trial. But you're really the ones who are on trial. In the end, you'll see that I am seated at the right hand of God, seated in a place of authority. You will see that I am the judge. You're saying your judgment will not change who I am. What will you do with Jesus? That's an important question. The more important question is, what will Jesus do with you? He stated unequivocally, that's me, that's who I am. You want it plainly? That's who I am. There's a story that I love about Galileo, who is brought before the Inquisition for teaching the heretical 
Copernican theory that the sun was the center of the universe. This is what Galileo taught, that the earth revolved around the sun. The church had taught for years that the sun was the center of the, I mean, that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun revolved around the earth. He was brought before the Inquisition, threatened with death, threatened with torture. And so before this court, Galileo recanted and said, surely the, the sun revolves around the earth. He did that to save his skin. He did that so he wouldn't be tortured. But it was said as he left the courtroom, he mumbled under his breath, but the earth does revolve around the sun. We've all done that, haven't we? Well, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't deny it to save his skin. He said, this is who I am. Jesus in a religious courtroom, a legitimate indictment, a self-incrimination. And finally, I want you to see an inadequate, or excuse me, an inaccurate, an inaccurate verdict. Look at verse 71. They said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. They had gotten what they wanted. This had been what they were seeking, a personal admission that he was making these absurd claims. At first, it would seem that their verdict was accurate. He was indeed guilty of claiming to be the Messiah. He was. However, the entire verdict was he's claimed to be the Messiah and God and is thus guilty of blaspheming God. He wasn't blaspheming God. That's who he was. He was just telling the truth. Their verdict was inaccurate. He was only guilty of telling the truth. Think on this. If Jesus had only said, if he had lied, if he had said, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Son of God, I'm not the Son of Man, if he had only said that, there would have been no crucifixion. And there wouldn't be any crucifixion today. The liberal churches <laughs> are denying this. They don't struggle with the world. The world doesn't struggle with them. It just goes away. But you have probably already guessed where this will end. I've taken us through this early morning court. It probably lasted a couple of hours. I've taken us through this episode to ask me, to ask you, where do you stand in this scene? I don't care what your age is. Are you in junior high? High school? College? Married? Unmarried? Are you are you like me, an older person? Where do you stand? Where do we stand in this scene? There's a Dutch preacher, a theologian that I dearly love. His name is Klaus Skilder. He wrote a great trilogy on the sufferings, trial, and death of Christ. He was such an intellect and, and preached with such depth that I only understand about a half of what he preaches and what he taught. But Skilder said this. When Jesus said, you are right, 
I am Messiah. He forces the issue with each one of us wherever we are. So where are we? Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the son of man coming on clouds of glory. Where are we? How do we respond? I was talking to a friend, a man who had become a friend of mine early in my ministry. We were in his house in Tazewell, Virginia. His wife came to our church. And I went by to see him one day. He was a man of substance, man of education. He was somewhere between an atheist and an agnostic at the time. He was a, an ardent follower of the philosopher Marcus Aurelius. And we were talking about this, the person of Christ. And he wanted to know what I thought. And I told him. I said, in fact, this is a real issue with me right now. I'll never stay in a denomination. I'm in a denomination now that's in the midst of denying these things. I will not stay in a denomination that denies the deity of Jesus. He looked at me when I said that because that was a huge statement there. That was before the PCA. That was before mainline. We were seeing people leave mainline churches over doctrine. And he looked at me and he shook his head. I'll never forget it. I can still see it. And he said, John, you keep preaching like that. And one day they will be throwing the stones and knives at you. And he laughed. And I laughed. This is my friend. He said it with a smile. But we both knew there was truth behind his words. And I said, I've got to go. And I turned to leave. And then it hit me. And I'm so glad I said it. I turned and said, Vernon, you've asked me what I, what I will do. And I've told you. I said, in that scene at the trial of Jesus where he says, I'm the son of God. I said, when they start throwing the stones and knives at him and at me, where will you be? You going to be throwing the stones? And he took great pause and this time he wasn't smiling and he said John I will not be able to throw stones at you or him it was a huge statement for him to make a few years after that he sat in my office one Wednesday evening and affirmed that he then believed in the deity of Jesus Christ. And after that, he came to love him. I saw him change. Where are you in this scene? In the beginning of our worship, we affirmed where we were by singing a great hymn. We come, O Christ, to you. The Sanhedrin could not sing that hymn. We close with another hymn that makes a similar affirmation 
about his identity and about what he did. It's important. It's a declaration of where we're standing. As I tell you, remember the statement of Jesus. One day, one day you will stand before Jesus. And it will be his courtroom. All of us will stand there. Our hymn is Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.